Welcome to Your Cathedral Podcast, a podcast from the Cathedral Church of St. Luke and St. Paul in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information on our church, please visit yourcathedral.org. Will you pray with me? Come, Holy Spirit, come and fill this place, fill each one of us to overflowing. And Lord, would you speak through me now that your grace and your truth would be spoken, heard, and received deep in our hearts here today. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's history's shortest sermon. This one is not, by the way. But that one was. And it was preached twice, preached by two pretty significant preachers who also happened to be cousins. And the really interesting thing about this one sentence sermon is that the first part is embodied by one of the preachers and the second part is embodied by the other. And just as the phrase indicates, uh, one part prepares the way for the second part. And one of these preachers prepared the way for the other. Of course, I'm talking about our two main players in our scene from Matthew's Gospel that we just read, uh, those being John the Baptist and Jesus the Christ. These two cousins whose inextricable link was first made evident in utero when John the Baptist leapt in his mother Elizabeth's womb at the arrival of Mary, who was newly pregnant with Jesus. These two cousins were uh, prophesied of in the penultimate sentence of the Old Testament when the prophet Malachi says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Well, that great and awesome day of the Lord, of which Malachi speaks, actually comes rather quietly and unceremoniously in a stable in Bethlehem with lowly shepherds receiving the only semblance of uh, a kind of heavenly pyrotechnics, that being a radiant host of angels who were saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And there was a star. There was a star that rose in the sky, and uh, that star was sufficiently noteworthy that it caught the attention of some Gentile astrologers, and it moved them to follow that star to Jerusalem, assuming it was a sign of a newborn king. And they arrived at Jerusalem, at the home of the king there in Jerusalem, that they thought uh, would be the right place, the, the home of of Herod the king, but it wasn't this kingdom that the star heralded. They followed the star further until it rested over the place where the child was. If this child was a king, his kingdom was very different from the earthly Herodian kingdom or even the empire of Rome. It was such a different kingdom that the wise men 
rejoiced exceedingly with great joy at seeing the star over the house where the child and his mother were. And these Gentiles from faraway lands didn't just pay the child homage. They fell down and worshipped him. This was the great and awesome day of the Lord. At least it was the beginning of it. But from what we can tell in the biblical accounts of the coming of the Lord Jesus at Christmas, it wasn't caught by many. As St. John states in the introduction to his gospel, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. This king's kingdom was different. A kingdom not of this world, but rather it was the very kingdom of heaven that had drawn near. It was at hand. So there comes, as Malachi prophesied, there comes the new Elijah, who, like the original Elijah, comes to announce and point. But more importantly, he comes to instruct the world how to know and to receive their king. And so, if you would, with me, open to Matthew chapter 3. Uh, if you brought your own Bible, just open it right up to Matthew 3 or a Bible app or whatever on your phone. Or if you want to use one of those pew Bibles, help yourself there. You can turn to page 808 and 809. Matthew chapter 3. So John the Baptist comes preaching in the wilderness of Judea. He preaches, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There you go, verse 2. And as I said earlier, I believe uh, that first part of his sermon is actually embodied by John the Baptist. His very existence and his way of living is a, a picture to all of his listeners and to all of us who've read of this since uh, of what repentance actually should be. When he arrives, he arrives rather suddenly in Matthew's gospel. Um, in the narrative, there, there's no kind of pre-story. The, the stuff about leaping in his mother's womb, we only know of that because of Luke's gospel. It's not here in Matthew. Here, John appears, and to say that he is a striking figure is an understatement. Verse 4, he's this crying figure in the wilderness, dressed in camel hair, with a leather belt around his waist, eating only locusts and wild honey. He's hairy, he's probably smelly, and I reckon he had some welts from bee stings all over him. He strikes a figure much like Elijah, who is described in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, as one who wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And so there's no backstory to John the Baptist here in Matthew because he's clearly the long-expected prophet who was to come in the form of Elijah and with the same message as Elijah, a message of judgment and the inauguration of the new age of the true kingdom. And John the Baptist uh, does more than just represent Elijah. In a way, he, he represents all of Israel and specifically Israel's experience 
in the Exodus. One commentator I read uh, observed how John the Baptist, out in the wilderness eating food that can only be gathered, sort of recapitulates Israel's wilderness wanderings and gathering of manna. The wilderness wandering uh, of Israel was a judgment for their rebellion, no doubt about it. But it was also the means by which God would not only draw the nation away from their captivity in Egypt, but it would also work to draw the nation back to himself as they learned to be fully dependent on him as their only source of light, life and ultimate freedom. Repentance for Israel meant that they might become those who are fully devoted to and fully dependent on God. The exodus was meant not only to lead them to the promised land, but more importantly to their full citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. It was like a long 40-year method of repentance. That's why God reminds his people in the book of the prophet Amos, chapter 2, verses 10 to 11, He writes, also it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite and raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. I think sometimes we think of repentance uh, it, it, we think it means sort of stopping the bad and starting the good. You know, stop doing the bad stuff, start doing the good stuff. It's kind of uh, uh, kept in these very individualistic terms, and it's often very um, kept in this sort of purely behavioral terms. And the picture of repentance in the scriptures, though, is, uh, seems to be something much more holistic. It's corporate, and you might even say it's ontological. So to to repent is not just to do differently, it's to be different. Not only in terms of who you are, but in terms of whose you are. And we heard this term in that quote from Amos, the Nazarite. A Nazarite or a Nazarene is a strange term. Um, It's one that Amos uses here, and it came to mean in the Israelite vernacular, it meant it was a person in Israel whose life was not his or her own, but was the Lord's completely. Nazarenes were those so fully devoted to God that their life was to become united with God and with his kingdom. They were those who didn't just acknowledge the king, but were fully identified with their citizenship in the kingdom. And and so to repent is, in some ways you could say, to become a Nazarene or a Nazarite. And in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist certainly appears to be like a Nazarene. As he is the picture of the repentance to which he is calling the people of Israel. And interestingly, Jesus is also called a Nazarene in that last verse of chapter 2, right before the passage we read here in chapter 3. Verse 23, it says, And Jesus went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. 
The cry of John in the wilderness is for the people to repent and be baptized. And this is how he is preparing the way of the Lord. He's calling out as a Nazarene-like person to others that they might become Nazarite-like people. Also, they might um, embrace their citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, led by a king who has come as a Nazarene himself. And so I ask you, how many times have you thought of repentance only in these terms of a certain behavior or a certain misdeed of yours? Sort of a glorified, sort of spiritualized version of what some of us do at the new year, right? We repent of how we were living in 2022 and we're going to live a different way in 2023. You need to repent of this or that. I'm so sorry for this thing I did I repent and ask for your forgiveness. Right? We might say something like that. But here, with John the Baptist and his call to repent, he's saying to his listeners, not just do what I am doing. He's saying, be like me. A person living with complete devotion to and dependence on God. As Israel was meant to live. Be a Nazarite, he's saying. Repent, not so the kingdom of heaven will be at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is not a call to better behavior, but a call to a transformed life, united with a heavenly king. This kingdom has come. The light has dawned on those dwelling in darkness, the pillar of fire that will lead the people is here. The great and awesome day of the Lord has arrived. And so repent. That is, be those who see and know and live according to this fact. And the way to symbolize this surrender and transformation is to be baptized. And, in, and through that, the old is gone and the new has come. The wandering and rebellious Israelite is now a devoted and dependent Nazarite, just like John the Baptist. And then comes our passage that we read this morning. Verse 13, Jesus comes from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And I dare say we all have had our questions and are maybe questioning this morning. Why is it that Jesus comes to be baptized by John in the Jordan? John the Baptist, of course, has his own questions about this. Verse 14, he says, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And I think the answer to our questions, though, comes in Jesus' embodiment of the second half of the shortest sermon. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what does this mean and why is baptism important for this? Well, as I said earlier, Jesus is also described as a Nazarene himself. And the baptism is a very Nazarene act by Jesus. If a Nazarene is one who shows complete devotion to and dependence on God, then for Jesus to come and be baptized and enter the same waters as those others being baptized... What more Nazarene act could he do? What would be more obedient to his Father in heaven than this? To enter in fully. 
So Patrick just went on a trip to Israel. I did the same trip to Israel. And part of those trips to the Holy Land, you, you often will go to the Jordan River, to the spot where Jesus was baptized or where they think it was. And, and you can kind of renew your own baptismal vows. And we did that. And you could have an opportunity to kind of be dipped in the water and all that stuff. But while I was there, I learned something I didn't know. And maybe you don't know this. But the bottom of the Jordan River is the lowest place on earth that a person can go on their own. Right? So presumably the bottom of the Dead Sea is lower, but we can't get there swimming. Or the bottom of the trench of somewhere in the middle of the ocean is lower, but we can't get there. Right? But the lowest place a human being can get on his or her own is the bottom of the Jordan River. And so when I got there, I wasn't content to just dip in the water and kind of renew my baptismal vow. That way I said, you know what, I'm going to go and sink to the bottom. And so I took a big deep breath and I went and I sank down to the muddy bottom of the Jordan River and I just hung out down there as long as my breath could hold. Because I was wanting to identify again with the reality of the old man. This is it, the lowest place. And it's there that Jesus goes. He goes to the lowest place. He enters in fully to what we are. Or were. The king went to the depths to announce that his kingdom was at hand. He went and did the thing that symbolizes the death of the old man or woman in order that the new man or woman can be born again as one fully devoted and dependent on God as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven like a Nazarene. This was to be done, Jesus says in verse 15, to fulfill all righteousness. Here is the coronation of the king who is like a Nazarene. He is a king who is fully devoted to his father God and dependent upon his father God. So, verse 16, the heavens open, the spirit of God descends, and the voice of the father is heard. This is my beloved son whom I am well pleased. Here is the kingdom of heaven at hand. It's Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8 fulfilled. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You know how a king holds an orb or a queen holds an orb in their hand? It's the symbol of the earth. And this is the true king who has dominion over the entire earth, to the ends of the earth. And submitting to this baptism, well, it's actually not the most Nazarene thing that Jesus does. It's a foreshadowing. It's not the fullness of the day of the Lord, the great and awesome day of the Lord. As I said, it's the beginning of it. It's the foreshadowing of the submission to the ultimate baptism of Jesus' crucifixion where he will go even deeper than even the bottom of the Jordan River. At the baptism, he will descend to the greatest depths possible. This king is a Nazarene who gives himself so fully to God that he is willing to give himself fully to us. He is willing to be so fully obedient to his father that he would even be obedient unto death, even death on a cross. All so we 
can also be Nazarenes devoted to and dependent on our God. Jesus becomes repentance even more fully than John the Baptist. All so that we can likewise repent and enjoy all the fullness of life in the kingdom of heaven. And so I'm sorry, folks. This sermon is just a little over 2,000 words long. Maybe I should have just said this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Amen.